Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, and you're listening to The Economist Asks. And this week, our question is, what would a modern utopia look like? If we want more progress in this century, we need these utopian visions. I mean, if there's one thing that history teaches you is that there's nothing natural about the way we govern our societies right now that can all change. Almost every civilization has, at one point or another, been considered unimaginable by comparison with those that went before. It took Thomas More to give a name to humanity's ideal society. In 1516, he published a book, Utopia. More's utopia closely resembled life in a monastery, which is why it's worth remembering that not everyone has the same idea of what a utopia would look like. Even in the context of our own living memory, though, human progress has been remarkable. Since 1990, the number of people suffering from malnutrition worldwide has shrunk by a third. Two billion people have gained access to clean water. Child mortality has fallen by two-fifths and maternal deaths have halved. Perhaps, then, utopias are closer than we think. So why, my guest asks, shouldn't we stop imagining the unimaginable now? Yet some progressive notions of utopia, open borders, shorter working hours and a universal basic income, first floated by a contemporary of Moore's, seem to be further away than ever. So are we getting closer or further away from that dreamt-off land? We decided to give The Economist Asks an outing this week to the Royal Society of the Arts in London. And there I spoke to Rutger Bregman in front of a live audience. At 28, Rutger is a best-selling author. His book, A History of Progress, won the Belgian Liberales Prize. And his new book is Utopia for Realists. And I started by asking him why, after the baleful experience of the 20th century, would we still believe in utopias post-Stalin and post-Hitler? I think it's important to make a difference between the blueprint utopia that these dictators were dreaming about and that they tried to implement with a lot of violence and the idea of utopia as sort of more an abstract ideal, somewhere you're always reaching for but you never really arrive at because there's always something else you want to go next. Oscar Wilde once wrote that progress is the realization of utopias. Every milestone of civilization, you know, the end of slavery, democracy, equal rights for men and women, it was all dismissed as crazy, ludicrous once. So if we want more progress in this century, we need these utopian visions. And Why is that not just progress, though? Because I wondered if there wasn't a conflation as we went along between progressive ideas and ideals, mm-hmm. which we'll go on to unpack in a minute, and a utopia. Now, a utopia from Thomas More's time onwards means something else. It's an overall state. It's more mm-hmm. holistic, small s state. Well, actually, it's a really interesting book that Thomas More published more than 500 years ago. It's very hard to interpret. Historians are still discussing about it because, for, for example, um, the guide in Thomas More's Utopia is called Hithaldeus, which means speaker of nonsense. Um, so it seems as if Thomas More also understood that you also need to be able to, you know, look at yourself and sometimes laugh and say, well, 
you shouldn't take yourself too seriously, but also strive for something. And that's, well, Hitler and Stalin certainly didn't laugh at themselves, right? So there is uh, the, the birth of the idea of utopia. And as you rightly say, Thomas More plays with it. But he also has quite concrete recommendations. He thinks that children should be brought up communally. There's a communal element to utopia. How communal is your idea of utopia? And why does that not just make it socialist old wine in new bottles? Well, not at all. It's in, in fact, you could even argue that I, I make the case for a capitalist utopia. Some people see the, the basic income. One Belgian philosopher calls it the capitalist road to communism. So for the first time in history, everyone will have the freedom to decide for themselves what to make of their lives. And we can now afford it because capitalism has made us so tremendously rich in the past 200 years. We can now afford to give everyone a dividend of progress. It's sort of a collective inheritance. And it's not communism. It's not socialism. It's not that people will all earn the same salary. It's just a platform. It's a base. It's a floor in the income distribution. And everyone will have the means to take risks. And that's what capitalism is all about, right? Take risks, be innovative, but a lot of people don't have that opportunity right now. And you have tied that to the universal basic income idea. Now, who would administer that? Is that something that you think a nation state should administer? Because in that case, I better hope that I get born lucky and live in a rich state. Well, that's true. I think that you'd have to start, obviously, with a nation state. There are some people who argue that we could also do it on a Europe-wide level. Well, I'm all for utopian thinking, obviously, but that's not very realistic to me at the moment. So it seems like a good idea to start with the nation state, make it a citizen's right. Let's talk about universal basic income versus other ways that you could raise floors of income. If you look at some of the economists' coverage, I think we've approached it in the spirit that it's a very interesting idea. We're not dismissing it because it sounds utopian. Where there are concerns about it are that it is quite hard to set the floor. It is hard to guarantee going forward that you can do what you think you can do with it right now therefore your intentions might be good but you're not entirely sure uh, what you're going to get back from it so you might be better off just raising minimum wage floors what's wrong with that i mean why not stick with the the boring old stuff of gordon brown budgets uh, rather than going off to utopia well actually the the economist was a great source for my book there was one experiment that was done in uh, london a few years ago where they gave 13 homeless men just three thousand pounds and they used it very well. And seven out of 13 of the men had a roof above their head after a year. And even The Economist wrote at that point, the most efficient way to spend money on the homeless might be just to give it to them. So what I think is that the poor are the real experts on their lives, and that people know much better than other experts, self-appointed experts, what to do with the money. The great thing about money is that you can spend it on whatever you want. It's, I mean, uh, the problem is that so often we make decisions for other people. And it's a very evidence-based book. I just try and look at the experiments. It's not an ideological proposition for me. I understand that, but of necessity, you have quite small experiments to go on. A small one involving the homeless in London, the Canadian uh, one that you, you cite. Yeah. The criticism or the challenge might be, well, these are reasonably niche. They might actually work very well for a niche of experiments that you've done. But if you're going to make a claim to universality, that's quite a big one. Well... I think we've actually got quite a lot of evidence already. I mean, I'm all in favor of more experiments. They just started one in Finland, and there's going to be a big one in Canada as well, as I earlier said, also one in Kenya. Uh, but we've got quite a lot of evidence, or evidence already. These experiments that were going on in the U.S., for example, they're worth, worth more than 10,000 people. 
the Canadian experience was also with about 2,000 people, just as the, as the Finnish experiment right now. We've got one fascinating experiment, a natural experiment, that happened in North Carolina where a casino opened. Um, and it was operated by the eastern band of Cherokee Indians. And they, uh, well, they just distributed all the earnings among the, the members of the band there. And the fascinating thing is that earlier, a psychological study had already started there among about 1,400 children. Uh, so they could really track the effects of that cash transfer, which was basically a basic income. And what they found out, Randall O'Key, an economist at UCLA, found out that the savings in terms of lower healthcare costs, less crime, people performing better in school, etc., etc., were actually higher than the cash grants were themselves in the first place. So, as I said, we should really see this also as an investment. And that's something that I haven't read in The Economist yet. So maybe you could do something. Well, you can, uh, you could go talking to us. You can do it yourself. That's, great. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> uh, universal basic income might, however, have some of the flaws that the welfare state has shown as it's got very complex. In that, you start out with an idea that the welfare state is enabling. It's a safety net, but also a springboard. It's something we discussed in The Economist. The RSA has, has also uh, published a lot of very good research on it in the last few years. And you end up with something that doesn't do that. Again, it's the claim to universality, which seems to be the slightly the trigger point for the concerns about it. Why would it not do what many welfare states have done and actually mean that people do less than you rather hope that they would do? Well, about the universality, I think one of the big reasons to give it to everyone is that it would just completely remove the stigma of receiving a basic income. Um, what we have now is a welfare system that traps people in poverty. There are incredibly high marginal taxes, for example, that, that people have to pay. A basic income would get rid of that. Um, what you have to do now, if you're, if you're poor and apply for benefits, you have to prove over and over again that you're depressed enough, that you're sick enough, that you know you really can't work. I mean, at some point, you start to feel like that, right? So, Is that really all that's wrong with the welfare state? Well, I, I'm, I mean, it's a, it's a great achievement. and um, It's better than nothing, obviously. But I think we can do much better. So. How would you make the political case for this? Because it's a subject, as you rightly point out, and you're driving it very much through your writing, that's coming onto the agenda. You've got a crowd of people here today you know, curious about it and where it might fit... Uh, with existing political and social thinking. And yet if I wander out and there's a demonstration on the street, it's not yet quite what's on the placards. It's more likely to be from the left, save the something or other, NHS, last weekend. But you know, as a symbol of a, a desire to hang on to old achievements. How would you win that political argument, also given the polit political realities of the time? Well, maybe we would have to start with a different language um, uh, where we defend these ideas with. So what the left is, is often doing is that it's framing its arguments in terms of caring. We should care for these poor people and pity them, etc. Well, that works for a certain segment of the population, but not for many. Most people hate it, actually, especially the good Samaritan who's always, you know, I'm going to help you, I'm from the government, etc. Um, what I'd like to do, or what I try to do in my book, is use more, well, you could even say that it's, I try to use right-wing language of investments, innovation, uh, getting rid of government paternalism to defend more progressive ideals. And that's exactly what's happening right now. In Finland, for example, it's a center-right government that's doing this experiment. In Canada, it's a conservative senator that's pushing the experiment. It was Richard Nixon, of all people, 
that proposed a modest basic income in, at the beginning of the 70s got it through uh, Congress twice, and it was killed by the left because they thought it wasn't high enough. So. An example of the, the best being the enemy of the good there. But it does put you on the spot. I'm going to make you prime minister and you can choose your country. Uh, and you, you bring this in and just, just imagine the unimaginable because that's, after all, what you're all about. Yeah. It doesn't work that well. What are you going to do then? You're going to take it away? No, I'm going to write a new book. And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> that's an author's response to being prime minister. Yeah. How well, testable let's, do you let's believe be honest. Let's, let's be honest about this. Um, I don't want to be too dogmatic. I'm all in favor of more experiments. What I only try to say in my book is that there is a lot of very hopeful evidence that this is a really good direction of thought and that we should explore that road. I'm not that dogmatic in the sense that if, if, you know, if we'll do a really properly rigorous uh, experiment and there will all be kinds of effects that I didn't, I didn't foresee, then sure, I'll have to change my opinion. That's what John Maynard Keynes said, right? Uh, if the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do? I think the... Chancellor Philip Hammond has just cited that this morning, it's, but it's very useful to chancellors after, after budgets. Um, what did 2016, that year of such huge upheavals in Europe and in America, Brexit in Britain, what did it teach you about voters and their priorities? And where do they fit into your idea of a practical utopia? Well, I live in the Netherlands, and the Netherlands was, when I grew up in, in the 90s, was sort of the best example of, of the end of history. It's the most technocratic government we ever, ever had. It was the Social Democrats working together with the, well, the, the liberal the liberal conservatives. And even the Social Democrat prime minister said, well, the, just losing our ideological feathers has been a liberating experiment, experience. You know, the only thing that's left now is solving problems. Um, but we were also the first country that witnessed the rise of a populist xenophobe with Pim Fortuyn. Uh, after that came Geert Wilders, which, who's much more radical, actually, um, than, um, and, and earlier as, as well than, than um, people like Donald Trump. Even Nigel Farage said, said uh, once that, oh, Geert Wilders, well, hmm, he's maybe a bit too... Uh, so, <laughs> um, we, we are used to that. From that? And, well, you keep thinking on the right. So in, in cultural terms... You know, the debate is really broken open. That's really the major dividing line now. And that's what you see around the globe. But in economic terms, we're still a technocrat country. You know, it's still the same parties, actually, that just formed the coalition. We've got elections um, in the next few days. But in economic terms, there's still no alternative. So what I think you need to do is move the debate from the cultural sphere to the economic sphere and start talking more about those kind of issues. Do you so that people anything from populists, though, because it does seem sometimes that progressives have their fingers in their ears a bit when they listen to populists, find out what's wrong with them, and maybe not hear that there is a kind of utopian thinking that may be coming from a direction they just mm-hmm. don't like. Well, Donald Trump is the greatest utopian thinker of our time. I mean, you know this, you know this quote, right, from Mahatma Gandhi. Well, he never actually said it, but it's still a great quote. Um, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. Now, that's, that's a quote that a utopian thinker like me loves to use. I, in fact, I use it quite a few times. But just last year, it popped up on the Instagram page of Donald Trump. So, I mean, he's a great example of that the unthinkable can become reality quite quickly. Um, and it moves in both directions. But does it? I mean, why does the right seem to have more good fortune behind it on that than the left at the moment? Well... As a historian, I really like to look at the, at, at the role of ideas in history and also at the role of crises in history. So 
one chapter of the book is about the rise of neoliberalism that's actually started in the 50s already with the Mont Pelerin Society, a think tank with Milton Friedman and Friedrich von Hayek. And they said to each other after the Second World War, we need to develop new ideas. We're, we're completely dismissed right now. We're at the fringes of the debate. But a time will come uh, and then we can enter uh, the debate with our new ideas. And that crisis came with the oil crisis and the stagflation. It all happened. The problem in 2008 was with the financial crash, is that there, there were no new ideas. The, we, we got the Occupy movement that famously said, well, we have got no program, and that's good about us. Well, I don't think that's... You need to, as I said, you need to be for something, not only against. Quick word on borders, uh, which figures in your book, and the idea that controlled borders may not really be the necessity that we think they are. Well, Again, political reality does seem to be pulling in the opposite direction, but in fairness, that's not really what you were analysing in this book. You know, you've got a longer timeline than just predicting what was going to happen in European politics. But is it perhaps that human beings are more naturally tribal and protective of their native communities and culture than progressives have felt at ease with? Well, you could also argue that humanity is a traveling species, and we all, always have been. You'd be surprised, actually, if you go back in history, how recent the invention of borders is. Uh, about three-quarters of all walls worldwide were built since the year 2000. Uh, at the end of the 19th century, borders existed mostly on paper, and the countries that issued passports, like the Ottoman Empire and Russia, were considered backwards. Um, so, if, I mean, if there's one thing that history teaches you is that there's nothing natural about the way we govern our societies right now that can all change. Uh, and if you, if you ask the question, what is the biggest injustice of our time? What is the biggest source of discrimination, of global inequality? Well, it's borders. I couldn't ignore that subject. Rutger Gregman, thank you very much. Rutger Bregman, author of Utopia for Realists, with me there. That's all this week from The Economist Asks. In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.